Happy New Year's to you. How are you? You can talk back if you'd like. Nobody's, nobody wants to talk to me. I just feel alone up here. Uh, before we get started, why don't we pray? We uh, dunk our heads. Lord Jesus, we just come to you. Uh, like Billy said, and uh, Hebrews reminds us that you're on a throne, and that you were here, and you ministered, and you walked among us, and you lived perfectly and blameless, yet you took on all, uh, all sin for all mankind, and you were crucified, and you died, and that you rose again, and we're stoked about the power of resurrection, and we're just amazed by what you do, God, the miracles that you perform, and the way that you call us into that life, the way that you call us into an extra, extraordinary life, one that's astonishing and, and amazing. And so, God, I just pray you, Holy Spirit, that you would move among us and that you would remind us of the amazing things uh, that you give us, Lord, in your name. And we love you. And we just thank you for your word. We just ask that your word would be a lamp unto our feet and that it would enlighten us today, that you would... Uh, move us and change us and transform us and that we would leave here uh, with some difference and that we wouldn't settle for anything less. So we come to you with open hearts wherever we're at, Lord. Some of us are bitter. Some of us are hurt. Um, some of us are hardened. Some of us are just uh, excited and been worshiping all week. Some of us, um, Lord, are confused. And so, Lord, just take us as we are and um, shape us into a new tomorrow, more in your likeness. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. All right, uh, let's dive in. We're going to be in Acts 5. And the reason we're going to be in Acts 5 today is uh, just been praying and thinking about uh, where we're at and who we are as a people and um, what God's church is about. And uh, so going to Acts 5, if you know anything about Acts, it's basically where the church started. It's where church planters like to be because you get to see the very beginning of the church. You get to see the ancient church. Uh, about 12 years ago, I heard a guy named uh, Len Sweet, Leonard Sweet, he, he, he said this about the church. He said, the church is ancient future. And he was talking about the church now. And what he, what he meant by that is he, he gave the picture of a swing and he said, when you're on a swing, you lean back. And he was saying, we lean back to the ancient church. We lean back to actually gain momentum. And so today, what we're going to do is talk about who we are and what the future of our church will be a little bit, hopefully, prayerfully, in cooperation with what God wants for us. As he leads us into 2011, we're going to lean back today, look in Acts 5, and look at the ancient church. With that... When you're swinging, you lean back into the ancient church and you kick into the future. And there's this momentum as we continue to look back into our roots. We do that as believers. We go, Lord, where did you begin to build me up? Where did I get rooted down? Where was that moment that you began and that seed began to grow and you began to stabilize and establish me in you? And so as a people, we do that as well, right? It's never just about us. And so... Today, it's going to sound sometimes like it's just speaking to you, because that's what God does. He's, he's personal, and He loves us, 
And he knows exactly what he wants to say to you today. And that's the, the amazing part. That's the miraculous part of God's word, isn't it? Is sometimes we'll walk out of here, we'll have 150, 200 different sermons, and we'll go, God said just the right thing to me. And so that's my prayer for you. But also, I want you to be thinking, God's not saying anything to one person through the scriptures that are written to a community. I was reminded this week of just the picture of uh, the aspen groves and the aspen trees in Colorado. When you see these beautiful trees, they look unique, and each one looks individual. They look alike, but when you go to them, there's a different marking. But the truth is, is they're all actually all the same tree, essentially, because under the ground, from each one of those sprouts, they're all interconnected. It's a community of trees. They actually have the same DNA. So when God's speaking to us through Christ, we have the same DNA, And so we have different expressions in who we are as people, and churches have different expressions of the gospel around the world. But I wanted to remind you of that. As we look at the church, the ancient church especially, like here in Acts 5, sometimes we see outlandish stuff. And today we're going to see words like signs and miracles. And uh, I would say we're theologically a conservative church, the way that we look at the scriptures, and a lot of times uh, in conservative crowds, they don't say signs and wonders or miracles. That's too scary. So some of you may be scared right now, thinking, oh, are you going to get seriously charismatic? And the truth is, yeah, we are. We're going to look at the the word, and we're going to let God be radical. We're going to let God speak to us, and we're not going to be afraid to look at at this scripture. So join me in Acts 5. We'll start at verse 12. And we're going to see the dynamic of the church. And what Luke has been doing up to this point, Luke from Luke, and he's continuing the church and the story in Luke Acts. So as we see what he's talking about with the Acts of the Apostles, we're seeing the ministry of the first church. Okay? Here's what it says in verse 12 of chapter 5. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets, laid them on cots and mats, That as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits that they were healed. What's happening is it's normative in the first church for this kind of transformation. It's normative for people to be healed. It's normative for people to have ridiculous amount of anticipation. I want you to look at this picture. The picture here is uh, the apostles and everybody is at Solomon's porch, which is actually the Jewish temple. So why are the new Christians at a Jewish temple? Because that's where they had done life. That's where their real community was. That's where they were in habit of going at 9 in the morning, at 3 p.m., And at sundown, going to pray and to be together. 
And so they were to gather at these regular times like clockwork, a rhythm of their life. And so they were used to going to Solomon's porch, which was right there in Jerusalem. And just to give you a description of that, if you were to go up to Solomon's porch, where they're going, it faces east. This building actually faces east. So as you were coming up to this building, what you would see is something 30 to 60 cubits. So uh, basically 25 inches. So basically from here to here, you would, you would see uh, at least a facade of 30 cubits, which is about 60 feet. As you walked up, you would also see two columns. So it was also called... It was called Solomon's Porch, Solomon's uh, Colonnade, or Solomon's Portico. And as people would walk up, there would be two huge layers of beams that were 25 cubits high. So if you were walking into the entrance of the temple out here, you would be walking in, and it would be this huge porch, and it would it'd be very grand feeling. And what this porch did is it actually separated the the unbelievers from the believers. There was a a courtyard area where the conversations would be cultural, where it would be with all people. And it was a meeting place, right? It was kind of like where you would get your CNN for the day. It would be where you would get all the conversation for the day. And people would come from areas of the town, like at the city gate, and they would report as to what was going on in their local neighborhood. We kind of live that way, actually, at Red Sea. We do missional communities, and we, we bite off little pieces of our neighborhood, and we have people and leaders that report as to what's going on in that part of the neighborhood. So that's what they were doing much more often than us. They were seeing each other much more often, but that's what Solomon's porch meant for them. That was a very familiar place for them to go. Solomon's porch was the gateway. So behind it, if you were to continue west through those colonnades, you would go back and then that would be where they worship, what they considered the Holy of Holies, okay? Who's God using in this? So, so we have this setting of this holy place, but God is using yahoos. God is using people who were blue-collar workers, people who... Uh, weren't the most educated in the day. And I'm talking about Peter. And Peter was a little bit like, if you're, if you're familiar with his community, Royce. Royce may not like that. I don't know what he thinks of Peter. But <laughs> he's back there making comments. We'll talk to you later. <laughs> uh, right now, you're Peter, and I'm just kidding. R- Peter was a doer. He was task-oriented. Peter would see the pragmatics of something, and he would get that done. That's what Royce is like. Uh, Earlier in the chapter, you see that Peter was also working with John. John was more of a dreamer, more of a visionary. But what I really want you to see is, as we see God establishing his leaders and the apostleship, you'll see that it was the work of the apostles. We'll see that these miracles, these signs, and these wonders were done in their ministry. I want you to see that there's, if you look closely, you'll see that the people also joined that. And so there's this setting where these miracles are happening, where the sacred and the secular are coming together, where the Christian community is touching the culture, 
where people are coming to Christ and more added at this time than any other time before, where people are being healed. You want to know what else I want you to see in the setting? I want you to see the reality of this. I want you to see that it seems as though signs and miracles and wonders are, are becoming distant. We're becoming less in anticipation of what God would actually do. We had Aaron come up, and Aaron could speak for hours if we let him on what was happening in Haiti, what is happening with people's lives, the transformation that's happening. And this is so apparent happening. This is such an apparent happening. This is so visible, and this is so evident what God's doing through these people that people are starting to talk, and they're coming from all over the place. Are you seeing the setting now? It's not just this grandiose place with all these pillars and a very holy-looking place. Actually, holy things are actually taking place. There's a radical spirit of God that's, that's happening where people are being healed and transformed. So think of our parade. The only time I see people sleeping on the streets is, is during um, the Rose, Rose Festival. Yeah, that's it. During the Rose Festival, when we do a couple parades and people put their tents out there and people start sleeping out there, that's the setting that you see here. They're coming to the Christians and they're starting to line up. Believers and unbelievers, people who are accepting and rejecting God. But they're looking and they're saying, this is fascinating. And they're setting up. Can you imagine if we all walked out of here and we went up the street and walked, started walking through St. John's and all we saw was cot and sleeping bag one after another. And when they heard people coming out of the temple, the dwelling where God was, when they heard that the, it was time for them to be dismissed and they started walking to coffee shops and restaurants, that they would just want to catch a piece of the shadow? They, they would just say, that person dwells in the presence of God, and where the presence of God is is where the power of God is. And, and so there would be people just saying, just let me even touch your shadow. Okay, so signs and wonders. As we think about our church, can we be a powerful church? Can we be like the ancient church? That's the question today. Is it possible for us to be a powerful church and to live and to walk in the ways that God says is okay for the people to encounter his power, for people to actually have changed lives? Have we forgot that? Going into 2011, have you been thinking about the changes and the things that you want to happen in your life? I know that you have. Have you thought about that as a community? Is your desire to to richly dwell with a powerful God that he would use us as a conduit people? If you want to do some follow-up, read Colossians 3 about Colossians 3, verse 12 through 16. It'll talk about a people filled with this power, a compassion, a desire, a generosity, a kindness, and it moves right through them into the culture. That's what's happening here. That's what's on the table. And I'm going to help you out with the words, signs and miracles. What would you talk about today at the gathering? Oh, signs and wonders. The Latin word is miraculum. If you were to to take miraculum, so miraculous, miraculum, if you were to break that word down, it would come down to this beautiful thing. So sometimes we have this hype language and we're a little scared of TV evangelism and all this hype that goes with God and that people try and fabricate. But because we're discounting all of the hype and the fabrication, sometimes we ourselves have lost that God does beautiful things. Does God do beautiful things in your life? 
And if he hasn't in a while, then I hope today will inspire you and encourage you to move towards him in his presence. That there's no doubt that that's what he wants to do. He wants to do beautiful things in your life. That's, that's what a powerful church is, is, is when God's doing beautiful things. I want to read to you. I, I spent the week with uh, 500 teenagers. I had a thing called Winter Youth. I was uh, one of the speakers there. And uh, whew, you're talking to all of them, and you're laying your heart out, and you're like, I don't know what's happening here. I'm not sure if they're tracking with this. I'm getting older by the second. I feel so separated from you guys. I don't normally wear my hat backwards. And sometimes I do, but I'm really trying to relate with you guys. God's got something good for you. You know, you're just feeling it. I get this. Uh, I got several of these I wanted you to hear. I was at Winter Youth this week. I came to get out of the house. It sounded fun, but I had completely turned my back on God. I didn't care about anything and was angry. The first day you gave us your testimony... We both grew up in the same area of California, so it got my attention. When you were talking about being angry and knocking that guy out and then just skating around and contemplating death, he's really condensing the story, okay? <laughs> you guys are like, wow. I felt God say, that's where you're at now. And I had never experienced anything like that. I had never felt God at all. He was just an idea to me. Then it clicked. God is real. He is risen. This morning you'd called anyone to accept Christ. And after some had gone up, I decided to go up. I was overwhelmed with the sheer love that was shown to me. I'd never felt that from people I didn't know. I loved it. I'm changed forever. I just wanted to thank you for being a vessel to do God's work in me. Is that a miracle? I think that's a miracle. The process has been skipped. He didn't self-empower and self-enlighten. The kid let go, and he let God in. Those are the miracles that are happening. We're walking miracles. God's doing beautiful things in our life, and we have the opportunity to talk about them. I'm going to ask you again, because I'm going to give you an answer if, if it's not happening. Is God doing beautiful things in your life? And if he isn't, then stay tuned. So we see that God's using anyone. He's, he's taking the apostles' hands, and we see that Jesus' hands are still here. We're seeing, and this will sound startling at first, that God uses fat people. What does that mean? Faithful, available, and teachable. God uses, it's an acronym, settle down everybody. They're like, that's highly offensive. Do you not understand? I've offended myself on that one, okay? But faithful, available, teachable people. That God's not a respecter of how much money you make. God's not a respecter of your gender, whether you're a man or a woman. God's not a respecter of your title, 
God wants to use all people. He wants to use you. And so many times we go, oh, well, God does those beautiful things, those signs and wonders through certain people. And we discount ourselves over and over again. And I felt that even when I was speaking to the kids. And I I feel it here sometimes when I'm speaking. And I bring a story and people are like, well, yeah, that's what you do. No, God is saying that's what you do when I'm inside of you. God says these things happen when you are obedient. These things happen when you're coming mean to me and you're in my presence and you receive my truth. These are the things that happen when I navigate your life, when I lead you into the adventure. That's what he's saying. And he says this. He says, he says, these, this is the work of God. I couldn't manipulate that kid or those, those dozen kids that came to Christ. This isn't a manipulation game. This isn't about our humanity. This is about divinity. This is about what God wants to do here on the planet. God wants to do beautiful things. God is waiting for his vessels. And here's what we need to do is remain humble in his glory. God is doing amazing things. And sometimes we see that and we'll even take credit for it. I just want to remind you, um, I've found a really good mechanic, by the way here in St. John's. And um, so I recommend him to everybody. And he did my brakes uh, about a month ago, and he's done all kinds of stuff to my VW Jetta. Don't buy a VW Jetta. I'm just kidding. So he's just down here by the river. And uh, when I go down there, I don't go into his shop and go right over to his tools and just sit and gaze at his tools and go, thank you so much for fixing my brakes. You guys did a great job. No, I go to the mechanic. I go to the one who actually ha- has the intelligence and the know-how and the power to fix my brakes. But I don't go to, to the instrument. I don't go, that was such a beautiful thing you guys did. I just feel like when I'm rolling in that 99 Jetta, there's signs and wonders happening. You wrench. Don't be so humble. Come out of there. When God's doing things, give God the glory. Wow. I want you to write down, here's some characteristics of a powerful church. And look at verse 13. Verse 13, this is such a peculiar passage. I've never even looked at this passage very seriously until last week or earlier this week. It says this, None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. So all of these things are happening. They're at Solomon's porch. There's tents and cots, and people are sleeping everywhere, and they're talking about Peter's shadow, right? That gets weird, too, like when people see Mother Mary in a tree, or they start looking at relics. Like the medieval church was really good at this. They'd have all these shavings and all these little pieces of wood that would spread all over Christianity. People would say, this is a piece of the cross, I mean, it got so ridiculous that there were three skulls going around the earth. People saying, this is John the Baptist's head. And so people really want a piece of it, a souvenir from it, right? And it becomes kind of a relic. And so the shadow isn't the power, right? It's, it's a representation. It is a sign of the wondrous God. It is just a sign of it. But sometimes we get into these relics and, and we look at these certain things and 
And, and, and we get too involved with the sign and not who the sign is pointing to. And so here's what happens is every once in a while, there will be such an expression of the gospel that there's, there's no ands, ifs, or buts about it, that it's God's power and that it is of Jesus Christ. And the reason I, I take us to this, this verse and say this is quite peculiar is, is I love how honest the scriptures are to say this. There's such a power going on that's not about the shadow, that's not about the signs and wonders, that's so clearly about Jesus that people are rejecting it. See, if it was just a trinket or if it was just a piece of relic or it was just like a, a, a special prayer that you did or took the, the uh, little rabbit's feet, if there was just some little superstition involved with it, people would accept it. But one sign of a powerful church, and, and we have to, to deal with this, is people will reject the church. People reject the community. Because the gospel is center. And so what happens is people who care about purity, God's people, they say, we will preserve the purity of the gospel. We will say that, that Jesus is king and king alone. We won't we won't glorify the tools or the vessels or the instruments. We will say it's God. And we won't get caught up into human tradition or, or dazzling dazzlers that, that pull us away from the centrality of who Jesus Christ is. And when that happens, people will understand and they'll come in and they'll go, oh, there's no fluff here. This is actually about Jesus eventually I'm going to need to decide, am I going to fall on my knees and confess that Jesus is king among his community, or will I not? And, he, and here in this scripture, it's saying a powerful church, it, there's a place for people to reject. And I see Christians many times are codependent and go, no, come on back. Come on, why aren't you in church? How come you're not coming to church anymore? Well, sometimes people are saying, I don't want Jesus. I don't want to have signs and wonders and miracles. I don't want to be touched by that. I'm so hurt or I'm, I'm in offense to the things of God that I don't want to be a part of His community. And a powerful church actually has people reject that church. And many times people go, well, no, that makes us a weak church because we get addicted to the attraction. We want to attract everybody that we possibly can. And I'm not talking about grace. We have grace where everybody is allowed to be here. I'm talking about a separate thing. Once you finally come into the community and you understand it is about Jesus Christ and his church, we would preserve that. And we would say, it's okay for people to reject that. Why? Because Jesus was okay with people rejecting him. But that is a key sign, and that is a peculiar verse to our flesh to go, people reject God and that's okay? Yeah, God is sovereign. If God acts independently, we should have some of that to go, it's okay. God's working a bigger plan than I can see. And... and and the community itself, I want to remind you of what the backdrop is here. We're seeing a spirit-empowered church that has these signs and wonders and all of these incredible things happening where people are being healed. If you were to read 
just the section above this, you would see the contrast in which Luke is writing here. Luke is saying, in this spot that we've landed on, this is a dynamic church where God is doing beautiful things and the people and the work of the, of the ministry and the fellowship of the people and those who valued it were there and those who didn't, they took off. And he's just saying a really crisp, clean picture of what a dynamic church looks like. But beforehand, if you read this, and you need to read this during this week, there's a story of Ananias and Sapphira. This is a couple that lived in darkness. They said they were a part of God's community, but they lived in darkness, and they lied, and they were hypocritical. At one point, the Bible says that everybody had everything together, and everybody was on mission, that they had everything in common. And the leaders would dictate and move that as God led them to. They would move the community, and and the community would grow, and there was this dynamic. But here's what... uh, Luke is doing, he's showing a deep contrast between two churches. The gospel church says, I'm going to get found out. My sin will need to be revealed before God and before the people. And so those who want that will be transformed. They'll say, this is, this is who I am, truly who I am. There's an authentication of who you are. Even as you are vacillating between sinner and saint. But what happened with Ananias and Sapphira is they came and they said, hey, we know we're all selling stuff and we're all moving into a new phase and into a new season. Hey, I'm totally in. Into me. Into doing what I want. And Ananias and Sapphira said, hey, you guys, we sold our house for 300 grand. Here's, here's some money from it. And what had happened is they were caught lying by the Holy Spirit. This is a tough story, okay? And they came in separated from each other. One came in and said, hey, we sold it for 300 grand. They had sold their house for 400 grand. They weren't really wanting everything in common. They weren't really wanting to be unified with the church and have harmony. They lied. And Ananias died. What is going on? And Sapphira came in and said the same mumbo-jumbo and was killed. What in the world? I like the dynamic church where signs and miracles and wonderful things are happening. God's saying this. At the beginning of the church, God was highly protective of the church and the community. And God wanted to set a precedence that said, this is about purity. This isn't about lying to God. This is about being a community where I'm going to use my people. And if they're lying and living in darkness, that won't happen. And so we have this deep contrast where God actually struck two people down at the beginning of the church to set precedence to say, this is my bride. My bride is to be pure. My bride is to be repentant. My bride is to be blameless and holy. 
And so that happens, and so that's what we're looking at is this deep contrast between those who were living in the darkness and those who chose to live in light and live according to the truth and be obedient. That's a tough lesson, isn't it? That's not one I go to for inspiration to go, if I'm being rebellious and totally disobedient and shining God and giving him the fist and his community, people die. The wages of sin is death. God was showing very clearly that your sin and grieving the Holy Spirit isn't going to happen. And so, is there a seriousness or a value to the way that God sees community? God sees community, and the enemy of that, a friend of mine in this audience, said this in a seminary class when I was there, got it from another friend, he said, the enemy of community is isolation. And when you're isolated and you're totally into self-love, then there's not enough love to go through you into the community, and it's far from getting to the culture. And so a powerful church is one that recognizes that, allows people to reject, and doesn't just give sloppy grace to say, oh, well, we won't be so focused on certain things, especially the purity of your heart, especially the repentance of when you do walk in sin. That's sloppy grace when we don't take notice of, of what God actually has as an agenda within our hearts. I want to read this to you. This is a little piece. This is a guy named Milton Vincent. He wrote a thing called uh, A Gospel Primer for Christians. And I just want to look at this contrast between the way that God's calling us to be a community of love and, and when we're saturated by God's love that we can move on from ourselves and beyond ourselves. But he talks about the, the entanglement here of being so in love with yourself that you couldn't give, that you couldn't be used, that God isn't doing beautiful things because you're so busy trying to do beautiful things for yourself as opposed to allowing God to do beautiful things. He says this, Compared to greater endeavors... Self-love is mundane and tiresome. Consequently, the more thoroughly I can be done with such tedium, the freer my soul will be to soar at its God-intended heights. One of the leading causes of my natural tendency to self-love is fear. I fear that if I do not love myself, there would be no one left to love me quite so well as I do. An even more significant cause of self-love is a lack of persuasion that there is someone out there who's worthy to be loved more than I. Arrogance lies underneath both of these causes. I love myself supremely because I'm the most worthy person I know to be loved and also because I think I can do a better job at it than anyone else. Such arrogance makes me dangerous, yet it is deeply ingrained in my sinful flesh. Thankfully, the gospel frees me from the shackles of self-love by addressing both of these causes. First, the gospel assures me that the love of God is infinitely superior to any love that I could ever give to myself. Greater love has none than, no one than this, says Jesus while speaking of his love. And the deeper I go into the gospel, the more I experience the truth of his claim and thereby know how far his love for me surpasses even my own. His astonishing love for me renders self-absorption moot and frees me up to move on to causes and interests far greater than myself. Second, the gospel reveals to me the heart, 
the breathtaking glory and loveliness of God. And in doing so, it lures my heart away from love of self and leaves me enthralled by Him instead. The more I behold God's glory in the gospel, the more lovely He appears to me. And the more lovely He appears, the more self fades into the background like a former love interest who can no longer compete for my affections. Let's get back to uh, our text and look at verse 14. So our first one, one of the major characteristics of a powerful church was that it actually has the power to repel. It actually has the power of the gospel to where people make a decision not to be a part of it. Because people are faced with self-love. The biggest root sin of why people actually don't want to be in community, gospel community, is self-love. They want to take care of themselves. They don't want to allow God to use the community and God to do beautiful things, miraculous, transformative things, through other people, the instruments of God. And so we isolate, and we sit in darkness. And the other one is, is a more obvious one in verse 14. Look at this. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord Multitudes of men and women. That's a politically incorrect statement during that time for him to mention women. He's valuing women. No literature of that time is valuing and exalting the place of a woman and the equality of a man. It's not happening. And so, again, my appeal is if you're ever wanting to be a liberated woman, find that in Jesus squarely. Jesus is the liberator of of all men and all women. And so Luke is saying, this is the attraction, that it's for all people. In the community of believers, there's a fellowship and a ministry. And then, I want to bring you to another contrast. You're going to think I'm Debbie Downer. But there's this attraction that's going on because people are believing and placing their faith in Christ Jesus. And that's what's happening through a powerful community. But I want to remind you of some things that Jesus said in Revelation 3. Revelation 3, verse 15. Jesus says this to the church of Laodicea. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich, and I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So what's happening? Why am I reading this scripture? Is I want us to very clearly today see the difference between a powerful church where there's signs and wonders, where God is using a community of people, and God is using believers, no matter who they are, Peter, John, different personalities, no matter where you've come from, man, woman, God is saying there's a dynamic church, there's miracles and things and changed lives to be happened when you are this harmonious, peaceful church that is on mission with the gospel, preserving only the gospel. And then there's this deep contrast where he says, there's also a church that's lukewarm. They say they're the church, but they're not hot or cold. They're actually distasteful to me that I'll spit them out. That they say, oh, we're good to go. No worries, God. We're doing fine. We know who you are, and and you're in our life. But 
we're not enthralled with you. We're not mesmerized by you. We're not astonished by you. We're not in awe of you. And in some days, we're not even less than you. There's idolatries in our lives, and there's, there's works and empowerments that we do in our lives to make our own solutions. We have our own vision going on. And Jesus Christ himself is saying, woe to this church that is into mediocrity. Woe to the church that is not looking for the signs and wonders and the power of God. And we're going to figure this out. In verse 15, we're going to see the key to all this. What will separate us from this mediocre church that is lying to itself? And at the end of this uh, Revelation 3, I want you to see that Jesus just isn't being a meanie. That God isn't saying, I'm all about purity. I'm all about action. I'm all about word and deed. I see no separation and, and you know who Jesus is, right? The words that he said, he backed up by mission, that he lived out in his character. And so this is what God is asking of us, is to be these people that value and worship and, have, and see the worthiness of the gospel, and for us to live in reflection of that. And he's saying, don't live just this half-apple life. But he, he offers counsel. He's saying, hey, this is the way it's going to go. There's a reason we can read what he's thinking about churches as we are the church before we go before judgment. The word is alive and well, and this is truthful. God has called his people not to just draw to Christ, but to truly be developed in community and not to be an impotent community. God is putting us on mission and deploying us out to culture. And here's what he says. He says, but I counsel you, verse 18 of chapter 3 of Revelation. He says, after he says, I'm going to spit out the church that doesn't see that they're wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. He's saying, come to me in the refining fire of things to see true value. He's saying, come to me if you're in this pitiable, wretched place, but you, you are not recognizing it. He's saying, come to me. He's offering counsel. Again, he's saying, this is the situation that I spit out, but I'm making a way for you once again. God is pleading with us to get right with his ways and to obey him. He says this, I counsel you. He says, I want to put garments so that you may clothe yourselves instead of the shame of your nakedness so that that wouldn't be seen. And the salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see, verse 19, those whom I love I reprove and I discipline, so be zealous and repent. And then down in 22, he closes, he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We don't have time for me to read this, but if you want to see community, read this book by Diedrich Bonhoeffer, Life Together. And we'll see that he just has wonderful reflections during a very tension-filled time in history during World War II. He just talks very clearly about what it means to live together. This isolated Christianity, it doesn't work. This one where we're not looking and anticipating God's wondrous works. Okay, so... I think I've placed enough tension in the room to say the Laodicean church is uh, going to be spit out if they don't listen to God's counsel. 
We see over here the church in the New Testament that Peter's talking about is full of miracles and wonders and people are being healed and the church has never grown so fast. Why? Look at verse 15. This is our answer to our question today. How could Red Sea in 2011 be a powerful church? We see that the gospel repels and attracts. And so some people say, I decide not. You're a nice person, but I'm not so into Jesus. Okay, great. Or some people say, I'm in. God healed me. He's transforming me. I see the beautiful things that God's doing. So we see this deep contrast between how God works at the hands of apostles and new believers. And then we also see what happens to mediocrity. And we know the famous line in Matthew where Jesus says, Some of you will come to heaven and I'll say I never knew you. Even though you were prophesying and do all all of these things, even though you were in the church so-called and doing all of these things and speaking about Jesus and talking about the facts and quoting a verse here and there, he's going to say, at your heart, you were not purely with me. You were always on your agenda like Ananias and Sapphira, like Judas. People who say, I'm in, but not really taking it seriously. Just saying they're in on a surface exterior and God hasn't reached their heart. And here's the key, because sometimes you're like, well, you've asked three times, is God doing beautiful things in my life? The truth is, no. You read that self-love thing, and it bothers me because I do have self-love. Or I read that, and some of you still don't realize you have self-love. We have self-love, every single one of us. We're all protecting ourselves from God and his community because that's in our flesh. And the truth is, is none of us want this common ground. The truth is, is we don't expect these amazing things to happen. We just lack belief. We do not trust that God can love us more than we love ourselves. We've been hurt and we're mad. We've said, no longer will I be totally faithful and have a fidelity to the call that you have on my life. I will not be available to that. I'm not doing it that way again. I went that way, and I'm not doing that again. And therefore, we become unteachable. God is saying, wise counsel, listen to me. Let me restore you. And I want you to look at Peter's shadow. Peter's shadow is the sign to the wonderment and the miracle of what God wants to do in our lives. Look at verse 15 in our Acts 5 piece. So that they even carried out the sick into the streets and lay them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The shadow. What's in a shadow? You need two ingredients for a shadow to exist. You need light. And you need presence. All of these incredible things are happening and Peter's shadow becomes a a linchpin to what we need to understand. We want to be a powerful church. It means we're going to need to walk in the light of Christ. Together. God's light needs to be reflecting through our lives. And the other one is we need the presence of, of Jesus, of the Holy Spirit, of the Trinity. We need God's presence. Peter has a shadow that has a deep contrast to the world. 
It's a beautiful picture. If you see him walking and you see the deep contrast of the light of Christ and you see the presence of the Holy Spirit, you see the power of God coming through him. And it's in deep contrast to that which, which the culture is offering. What kind of shadow are you casting? What kind of shadow is this church casting? What is the shadow of Red Sea among its culture? When Red Sea people walk St. John's, walk Portland, Alberta, Mississippi, 21st, 23rd, Multnomah, when we're walking, is there so much of the light of Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit that we're casting a spiritual shadow? What is our shadow? Is it dim? Is it flickering? Is there the image of Christ at all? A powerful church, most importantly, casts the shadow of the presence of the Holy Spirit and walks in the light. I want to close out with this. Sometimes it's easier for us to be all by ourselves. And I'm talking spiritually. Sometimes it's easier to be where the lights are off. Sometimes it's easier to not see and to not recognize where we're at with our relationship with God. We find a real safe place in darkness. It's false. We don't see, and then when God's light comes through, it wakes us up. And his light is truth. When he illuminates, he's saying, the light that God is bringing into your life is truth. And we get caught between the light and the truth of Christ and what he's offering and the lie that we've told ourselves and have accepted as we live in the darkness. And the self-love perpetuates that. We don't believe that the truth is that God would love us more than we could ever love ourselves because we've been hurt or we've been skittish or we've bounced around in, in life. But if we don't accept that light, as the Scriptures say, it's not enough just to receive Christ, to live in Christ, but you also must walk in Christ. And as he illuminates and, and, and makes that pathway full of truth, as we come into contrast, as God shapes us through good and bad circumstances, we are transformed. But we must be courageous and bold enough to believe that God has a plan, that God's okay when we reject, and he's, he loves when we take his counsel and we come back to him. What will our shadow be this year? What will the shadow of Red Sea be? Will it be people that walk in the light and the truth of Jesus that are empowered by that and live in his presence? That's the key to the scripture. Peter was an everyday man who loved to get things done but lived by the truth of what Jesus had and lived in his presence. And will we be that? Will we be a collective of that? 
people coming together so there's a bigger shadow to cast out into our culture that defines the image of Christ? It's messy. Peter gave a sermon much earlier in Acts. And after he had told the people that the reason Jesus died was because of us, because of our sin, because of our blurred lines, our lack of conviction for things that are pure and holy. I sense uh, the burden in here. There's a burden for the things that are unholy in our lives. There's a burden for the lack of definition that our spiritual shadow is lacking, is not casting. And so Peter said, you who have a blurred vision, you who cannot hear so clearly, you who have put Christ on the cross, I said it cut them to the heart in Acts 2. And then in Acts 2.38 it says, they said, what must we do? What do we do in this situation? He says, repent and believe. Be baptized, every single one of you. So if you have a fuzzy shadow, if you've been okay with God, but you're not okay with His community, or you're okay with community, but you still got to come back to your relationship with God, if you haven't cared whether culture gets healed or is transformed at all, wherever you're at in the mission of being with God and being with His people, Today's the new day. Not because it's January 2nd and it's a new year. It's because God's counsel is, is loving and forgiving. The greatest power that a powerful church can have is, is that they understand and receive the power of forgiveness. So come today as the musicians come up and let's sing and let's stand and let's dance and let's disperse. If you need to, to write Something, if you need to confess something, maybe it's to a brother. God says, you can't love me if you hate your brother. Maybe there's confession and repentance, true repentance, a care about the purity of the church. God wants to use pure things, and he's made the way for us to be pure. We can't clean up the mess. And so as Jesus was broken at the cross, and his blood was splattered, and the new covenant was set, because God has, through his blood, allowed reconciliation. Let's come and be reconciled to God. Let's ask him to move mightily through us this year. Different. You've got to be open to different. You've got to be open to change. You've got to be open to God's ways. You've got to be open to his presence and his truth. And we must grapple with that. Will you pray with me? Lord God, I sense your gentle persuasion. I sense you, Holy Spirit, moving us. Not trying to manipulate us, but you're moving us to say, you belong with me, and I am community called Trinity, and therefore you belong in my community. You belong with me as I was pleased with Jesus, the picture of him being baptized and the dove descending, the Holy Spirit descending and resting on his shoulder. 
and the pronouncement that you gave, Father, that you're well pleased in Jesus, that's the place you've allowed us to be by faith. You say, I'm well pleased in you. Even though there's a, a hazy vision, even though you, uh, we have walked a pathway of sin, that we, we sit in forms of darkness, that you've called us to be the powerful church that would see signs and wondrous miracles, that we would see people healed, Lord. And Lord, help us in our unbelief. We're sitting here going, really? Is this just hype? Is this just some way to get us back into the church or to, to falsely tell us that good things are to come, miraculous things? Lord, were those children lying this week at Winter Youth when they said that their lives had been, begun a new transformation? No. Out of the mouth of babes, Lord, you teach us through innocence. You teach us through that purity. Let us come back to purity, Lord. Let us be repentant. Let us see the sickness of our sins. We want to be instruments that can be used and be humble ones. So, Lord, I ask that you would move upon us. But I do not believe you want to move among us until we repent until we give up old ways and old life or new rebellion. Help us see that our relationship with you is supreme. And Lord, that pours right into our relationship should be supreme with each other because you died for us all, men and women. We love you, Jesus. I ask that you would move on us this year, that we would take our time seriously, that while you're not asking us to meet at 9 and 3 and at sundown, that when we do get to meet, we would be eager of the gathering, that when we get to be in missional community throughout the week and run into each other and cast the shadow, Lord, that we would be ready, that we would see that and trust in your power and your presence and your truth, your light. And so, God, I just ask that you would deeply move and illuminate your reflection. Our transformation is to reveal more of you in our lives and our families and our marriages. And that's hard refining fire. So Lord, we pray that you would not say when we get home that you never knew us or that you would spit our mediocrity, our lukewarm Christianity out. We pray that we would be on fire, that we would love you and that we would sacrifice and live the same life in your footsteps, by your empowerment, not by us doing more and trying harder. That we'd be carried away by grace. We love you, Lord. We know what you have for us in store is exciting and is life-giving and is lifting up by the power of the resurrection and smothered in love. We repent and we'll come to this table, Lord, commune with you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please go to our website at www.redseachurch.org. If you would like to contact Red Sea, you can email us at info at